Well, I hope today you felt like a human being. You just got to be yourself and follow the day a little bit. Make your own decisions. Enjoy the simple pleasures, the company of others, playfulness, um, the chance to reflect, to sleep, to talk. These are all good things, good pleasures. And, you know, God is only known... God can only be known through love. There is no other way to know God. God can only be known through love. And these little moments are what love looks like. It looks like two people just talking and uh, looking out at the light on the trees. It looks like two crazy people I saw today jumping up and down over and over in front of a camera. Was that you guys? <laughs> yes. You gave me endless pleasure today. I didn't know what the heck was going on until I finally saw the camera. These two were sitting in this field. I was looking out this window doing this. And I mean for a very long time. I mean, I was exhausted. I mean, 10 or 15, 20 minutes of doing this. And then I saw there was a camera over there that they were trying to snap themselves in the air. So thank you for my God moment today. <laughs> This is what, uh, and, and don't we just feel a little bit more, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. When God shows up, the Bible tells us, we feel more generous, more patient, more kind. There's, little, there's more joy, more love, more self-discipline. And you can feel that's a little more accessible to us here. Just by giving ourselves a day. Now imagine if you had a day like this every week. That's the commandment. <laughs> it's as important as not murdering people. Take a day like this. Imagine how much more imagination and creativity, how much more kindness we'd have in our families, a little more patience. Do you know how much children love to see their parents laugh and play? It's like food to their hearts. What would that be like for you to have a day where you played and had fun, took time like this? See, the spiritual life is good news. It shouldn't, if, if you're doing anything in the church, anything in your spiritual life that leaves you feeling more disconnected, more frustrated, more anxious, uh, less yourself, more burdened, more closed in, then it's not of God. Stop doing it and let it go. The Christian faith is always, always, always good news. It's always good news. It always leaves you feeling more alive, more yourself, more connected to others. Okay? Even when it's hard, you choose it for the reasons of life. Even when there's suffering involved, you go into that suffering carrying Sabbath with you, a sense of peace and joy, a desire for life. You're willing to do the hard work, right? Like parenting. You do that hard work because it gives you life because it's a gift to you, right? So that, that's what it is, and that's always your, your uh, compass. And that's why you do that little prayer at night, where was I most alive? You, want to, you need to cultivate uh, a sense of what life is. That's the work we're all doing here. We're trying to come alive. We're trying to wake up. We're trying to be more loving and more ourselves, right? And that's what God longs for us. 
Okay, so let me just, I just want to say a little bit as a summary to today, and then we're going to do a little uh, ritual together. So Mary Gordon is a teacher in um, Canada, wrote a book called Baby Wisdom, and I got to hear her speak, and she tells this story of when she was young, she was one of those crazy people who wanted to be a teacher, wanted, and some of you know that crazy feeling yourselves and wish you hadn't followed it, and uh, she wanted to be a teacher, but not just an ordinary teacher, she wanted to work in a school where no one else wanted to go. She grew up in Toronto. She knew there were schools that everyone, uh, that very few teachers wanted to work at because they were at risk. They were badly funded. There was class numbers were high. And she thought, send me there. That's where I want to go. I want to help those kids. And so she got her teacher certificate and she got her wish. They sent her to an inner city school in Toronto. She taught sixth grade. There was 35 kids in the class, all of these from very at-risk environments. And it was chaos. All her dreams, all her plans, all the curriculum she had designed, she couldn't use any of them. All she did was behavior control, trying to keep these kids from hurting these kids and trying to keep fights from breaking out, keeping people calm, quiet. It was very, very demanding. And what was particularly demanding is there was a kid in the class named Damien. Why do they always have a name like that, by the way? Why is it always <laughs> Damien or Chucky <laughs> or Voldemort? They always have a name like this. And, uh, and this kid was a huge behavior problem. He, and, and he looked scary. He had shaved half of his head. And uh, he'd had a cousin, kind of a prison tattoo, using just ink from an ink pen, had a skull and crossbones tattoo uh, in the side of his skull. And she knew this background story of this kid. You see, when he was four years old, he had witnessed and seen his father shoot and kill his mother. And he had been going from one uh, uh, foster home to another and uh, was now living with his grandparents. And the kid was so disruptive that most days she had to send him out. Sometimes he was on the edge of violence uh, and harming other kids. And uh, it was very difficult. Well, she goes to the parents, a lot of them single parents, a lot of them working two jobs, very uh, difficult area where she's working, and she says, can I get some help? One mom decides, I can come in and start helping you out. The mother comes in to assist her, and the mother has an infant, 10-month-old little girl, but she's there to help. And Mary Gordon, the teacher, notices the presence of that baby changes everything. As soon as that baby comes in, uh, kids want to interact with the baby. They want to hold the baby. They want to watch the baby. And Mary Gordon, a very creative person, says, Everyone, I want you to sit on the floor in a circle. The unit this week is babies. We are studying babies. Get your journals. And they get the baby out, and they watch the baby trying to walk, and they're taking notes, and the baby would start crying, and she'd connect emotionally with the kids going, Do you know what the baby's feeling? I know exactly what she's feeling like. And so they'd have these great conversations and it was this uh, insight that she had. Well, one day, third, fourth day that this mother's here, Damien, the troubled kid, knows that this baby takes a nap around 11 o'clock every morning. He goes up to the mother and says, hey, um, is this when your daughter takes a nap? Yeah, he says, can I hold her while she sleeps? And Mary Gordon sees this interaction from the other side of the room, and she starts running. You know, save the baby, no! <laughs> Not to Damien. And um, she doesn't get there in time. She doesn't get the mother's attention. Mother doesn't know who this kid is. And she says, yeah, you can hold her. 
So she takes off the snuggly, puts it on this kid, puts her daughter into the front pack, and Damien immediately starts doing the bounce. You know, he knows that move just instinctually, and he starts walking around holding this little girl. And of course, this baby has no prejudice, no preconceived ideas. This is a warm human being holding her correctly, and she starts to nod off, puts her head on his chest, closes her eyes, and trusts him, falls asleep. And the boy is amazed. Damien goes up to the other kids and says, look, she's sleeping on me. Look at that, she's sleeping. And he starts showing the other kids, and he shows the mom, look, I got her to sleep. And then he comes up to Mrs. Gordon, and he says, uh, Mrs. Gordon, I have a question. She says, yeah. He said, is it possible to be a good parent if you've never been loved? And when I heard her say that about this young man who was in her classroom, I realized this boy had come down to the central uh, um, yearnings of the human heart. Two things he had noticed. One was, uh, I have a capacity to love. I am not the person everyone thinks of. I am not just my wounds. I am not just my suffering. I have a great capacity to love in me. Look at me. I can nurture. I can care. I am more than just my history. I am more than just the way others see me. I am more than just the story that's told about me. I can love. And he noticed the second thing, too. I need love. I need love. I can't sustain this. I can't be changed into the person I long to be. I can't be as free. I can't move into all my capacities and gifts if I don't have some kind of love. This is the human, uh, the, the basic human work. You see, Christianity is the practice of relationship. That's all it is. It's a spiritual path a way of getting free, a way of breaking out of the enslavement system of our culture through the practice of relationship. By learning how to practice relationship with God, the creator, the sustainer, the maker, the source of love, by learning to receive and share love with others, even difficult others, and by learning, this is the trickiest and the most neglected, learning how to show love from ourselves toward ourselves. It's those three relationships that break us open and get us free, make us more ourselves, develop courage and all the spiritual gifts. And the way in which we uh, develop is through life. Life is the great spiritual teacher. And if we slow down all the insights, all the gifts, all the experiences we need to grow fully into the image of Christ are present each day, waiting for us to receive them. All the teachings, all the teachers, the encounters are here around us all the time if we'll just slow down and receive them. But it takes being willing to have a long, loving look at the real, 
See, God's in reality. And if we're willing to be in reality, uh, that's where God is. That's where the teaching is. That's where we're broken free. If we're willing to slow down and take a long, loving look at the real. And in the real, we encounter God. It's so difficult because, um, you know, mostly in the Christian world, a friend of mine who's a guitarist, he plays at different churches. He's not a Christian. He said, I could be a Christian if they just had a sign over the door of every church that said, let's pretend. If it said, let's pretend, then I would understand what's going on. See, because everybody is kind of faking it, pretending they're not real. I mean, do you remember this as kids? I, I know the kids here have never had this experience, but I remember an experience where you would be in the back of the car, for those of you who grew up in church, you'd be driving to church, and your parents are going at each other, right? I told you not to spend that money. We're trying to save that money by the end of the month, and yet every week I look on there, and I see in the checking account, and you've been spending it. I did not. Well, I, what do I do? Not buy anybody. I ripped my sweater. I can't get a new sweater every time. I, no, I'm not saying that. You totally never listen to me. And they're going back and forth, and you pull in the church parking lot, and they're get out of the car. You're sitting in the back, and you watch your parents get out and go, Hey, good morning, Bob. Hey, it's a beautiful morning. Yeah, praise God. <laughs> and as a kid, you would just go, what just happened? <laughs> My parents were just going at it, and now they're in this other world. And then you kind of clicks inside of you. You go, oh, church is a pretend place. <laughs> we're not real here. We have to hide all this stuff. I mean, what if this church really, in the best way possible, became absolutely safe, where you could sit and say, do you know what? I don't believe any of this stuff today. I can't, not with what I'm going through. Or I'm not going to sing today. Or I'd appreciate it if um, uh, I could just take a moment today to just not preach because I had a terrible argument. Just hypothesizing here. (laughs) (coughs) On the way in. Okay, that's right. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was the kid in the back seat on the way up to this retreat, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Can someone else give me a ride back down the mountain tomorrow, please? <laughs> That's not true. But uh, where we could just be real. I mean, church should be the one place we can't wait to get to because it's the one place we can be ourselves. Everyone else, every place else, we have to hide and pretend and, and repress and be nice. But the church is the one place I can't wait to show up because I can just be myself. Right? That's what we're all longing for. And in the real is where we meet God. It's in the reality of what we're living that God comes alive. And what we begin to learn, and maybe we'll have to talk about this, but this is where I'm at today, is that the greatest lessons we get are through loss, are through grief. It's grief that brings us down. You ever been to a funeral? And you leave feeling grateful, like you've been brought home to what matters, and you're less stuck in the trivia, and in the hustle and bustle, and you realize you've been given a gift of reminding what you want to live, what matters, what your values are, a greater uh, sense of awakeness to life. Our greatest lessons as we're able to stay in reality are loss. And um, this, is, this is part of the gift of aging, you know, is uh, we lose all our capacities that we used to rely on. You know, our beauty fades, 
you know, our hair disappears. It actually doesn't. This is what I've been learning. It just, uh, you know, our ha my hair just tried to do its job. It did its best to help me attract a mate. And then once I did, it decided to go in retirement. Just decided to head south to warmer climates. I didn't actually, I still have the same amount of hair I've always had. It's just some of it's now down in Florida. As my, uh, so that when I took my kids to the, I finally got John's attention back here. He's, he's ready for this. He's like, tell me about it, man. It is crowded in Florida. It's like when I took my kids to the water slides not too long ago, and I was running to get to this slide in my bathing suit, and my son goes, look, it's a nursing ape. That's what he thinks I look like when I'm running just in my bathing suit. That, that was a completely off-topic <laughs> image, and uh, I want to apologize to those of you who are image-based <laughs> and who have that picture in your head now and no longer can look up here. and just focus on what I'm saying. <laughs> Kevin, we're going to need a song for a minute and just regroup. <laughs> no, the... the <laughs> Let's see if I can bring it back. <laughs> the great thing about aging is that uh, we're learning to trust more and more that we are the beloved, even as we lose our capacities. Our brain gets more foggy. Our eyesight falls apart. We lose our beauty, our strength. And so we have to rely more and more on God's naming us as beloved. We can't earn it anymore. We can't prove it. We can't fake it. We can't do the achievement appearance affluence thing anymore. And we're being called and invited more and more through that loss to pay attention to what really matters. And as we enter into those places of frustration and loss and all the places of grief in us and the things that don't work, you know, the Catholics have a name for it. They call it besetting sins. These are the, 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 the issues and struggles we have that we will never heal. We will never solve. They are always there until we recognize that they become a teacher to us. You see, if we could become perfect, if we could control everything, we don't really need God. We would demand that God come down to us. But because of this limp, this weakness, this wound, uh, we have to finally surrender and only allow God's love to be the thing that carries us. So it's through our wounds, ultimately, that we know God. If God isn't known in these places that we worked with this afternoon, if God isn't known in our wounds, if God isn't known to our exiles, then God's love is only a rumor. It has to be true in the weakest places within us, in the places of brokenness. That's why Paul says uh, that it's our weakness where God's power and strength is most available. That's why Thornton Wilder in his play Angels says, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is our wounds. You ever been around someone who you trust deeply, who's safe? <coughs> They're usually someone who has suffered. They know suffering. They're not afraid of it. They've accepted the parts of themselves that are broken. They know their weaknesses. And it's because of that 
that they have power and authority. And when they tell us a word of love, we believe them. It's through our wounds that we seek to know God. And in the scriptures, what we notice in the story we read this morning, and the one we'll read tomorrow, that the wounded are the ones who get free. The ones who claim their needs, the ones who reach out for the cloak, the ones who beg for mercy, the ones who call out, Lord, have mercy, the ones who are willing to be vulnerable are the ones who get free. And it's vulnerability that is holiness. It's our vulnerability that is holiness, not perfection. Our willingness to be transparent, honest, open, truthful uh, about what we've lived and what we've suffered and who we are. And often (laughs) what impedes us from God, see, God accepts us and receives us. We're the ones who keep us outside the gates. We're the ones who keep that rigid judgment. We're the ones who have difficulty accepting our limitations. And so if we're going to trust God in the places where we're wounded, we need a new image of God. That's what this whole weekend is about. In fact, the question is, who is the God that you have known in your experience? What's the image that most closely uh, uh, communicates that experience of God that we've mentioned today? Because the truth is, if you tell me God is all-knowing, we may get into trouble later here, all-knowing, almighty, all-perfect, all-holy, how can I love that God? That's a God I never want to be around. A God of all-power, all-knowing, all-perfect. That's a God who has no needs. That's a God that's difficult to love. That's a God I don't want sitting at my dinner table. The image we're given of God in the New Testament through Jesus is that God is a child, an infant, that God is uh, a naked body on a cross, that God is a refugee, that God lives under an oppressive government. That fragile image we're given in the New Testament is a God we can relate to. It's a God of sorrows. And what we later find out is only a God who knows suffering can help. Only a God of sorrows can help. Only a God who has that kind of The fragility of love can be trusted. Only that God can we feel any warmth towards, that God that we're given in Jesus. So the work for us is to be willing to sit in those places where we're vulnerable, where we're hurting, where we're wounded, the places where we're grieving. That's the thin place where God is most available. So let me uh, close with this image, and then we'll, we'll do something around this. Uh, the mentor to me, a spiritual mentor when I was growing up, was a man named Morton Kelsey. I met him when I was in my 20s. He was in his 70s. And he had taught at Notre Dame and, and written a lot of books on the spiritual life, and he kind of took me under his wing and, and became a, uh, like a spiritual father to me. And I would go with him on retreats. And... Uh, I would, often I was the one who would kind of assist him and drive him uh, to these places and help him with his travel arrangements. And, and Morton 
would always start the retreats by inviting everybody to tell their life story in small groups. Every retreat, people put in small groups, each person had 30 minutes to tell their life story. And he would model it by telling his life story. He thought this was very important that everybody revisit their life story. And he would tell his life story, and it was a terrible, terrible story. He had been born in Pennsylvania in a mining town in 1917. He had been born prematurely, what they called a blue baby back then. And his mother rejected him. So when he was born, she was so certain she, uh, that he was going to die, she didn't want to nurse him or hold him. And his father and the doctor had to force her to, have any, uh, uh, to, to hold it and to nurse him when he was born. Later, in his 20s, he found letters written from his mother to his aunt in which she said, I have given birth to a monster. And so this was, this was her feelings towards him when he was born. And so she kept him in a shoebox uh, in the room. Uh, that's how small he was and was certain he was going uh, to die. But he didn't. He lived. And as soon as he got uh, old enough and was weaned, they hired a uh, 16-year-old girl from the village. This is a mining town. They hired a 16-year-old girl to live in what they called the mother-in-law, a little house in the back of their house. And he was taken from the house and put there. His brother and sister stayed in the house. He was moved to that house to live with this uh, teenager who was going to raise and take care of him. So it's no surprise that when, uh, at, at the age of four or five, well, first of all, at the age of four or five, they then sent him to a boarding school. But before that, this 16-year-old girl noticed they thought he was deformed. They thought he, he, his mental capacities didn't work right. And she went to them and told them, I think he has a hearing problem. I think his mind is fine. I think it's hearing. And they took him to a doctor. And sure enough, they cleared out his ears and this girl taught him how to talk and uh, read, and he was sent to a boarding school at about six years old and was never brought into the home until he was an uh, older teenager. And so it's no surprise then, you can imagine having a beginning like that, that when he was 23 years old, he took the family shotgun and he went up into the Allegheny Mountains and he waited at night to end his life a feeling of such despair, such neglect, such self-hatred, such grief, that he decided it wasn't worth staying alive. The pain was too great. And he sat up on that mountain, and he decided to wait until midnight. And at midnight, he prepared the gun, and as he was preparing to end his life, all of a sudden, uh, he said it was, it was deeper than sound but he heard a song. He said, it was coming from the ground and the stones and the stars and the sky all around me, a lullaby. And the lullaby was so tender and so gentle and so loving and so caring that he just melted, he said, and wept and wept and wept. And he didn't end his life and he came down. He went to the nearest church he could find. His parents were not religious the next day and asked someone, tell me about God. And that began his journey of healing, where he ended up at a seminary and became Episcopal priest and began there. Well, I'd heard him tell this story many, many times. It's a terrible story. And um, one day, he, drives, he flies into San Francisco. I take him to a retreat. On the way back to the airport, he says, Mark, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, what, Morton's about 
uh, 70 years old at this time. He said, you know how I, he'd written 40 books, and he said, you know, I get letters from people all the time, I've written these books, and I said, yeah. He said, I got this letter, and the, the person asked, have you ever lived uh, in Pennsylvania? So I wrote her back, and I sent her a book, thanks for your, you know, note, thanks for your letter, and yes, I did used to live in Pennsylvania, in fact, I live in this little mining town, grew up there, and, uh, and uh, here's my next book, I just wanted to send it to you, and thank you. He said, I then got a letter back, and the woman said, when I was 16 years old, your parents hired me to take care of you. She said, my name is Claire. I'm 96 years old, and I'm living still in Pennsylvania, and I would love to meet you as an adult. So Morton tells me this, and I drive him to the airport. His wife, Barbara, flies up from San Diego, and they fly out to Pennsylvania to meet this woman. Uh, about a month or two later, I'm with Barbara and Morton, and uh, Morton can't tell the story. He, it's too emotional, but Barbara tells me the following story. She says, we show up to this nursing home, and we said we'd be there at 2. We show up at 2. There's a woman waiting at the door. She's holding the door in a little floral dress. She's just a frail little thing, and she sees us coming, and she's kind of excited like a child, but she's 96, <laughs> and she's standing there waiting, and we come up, and she sees Morton, you know, and she reaches her hands up and grabs his cheeks and looks deep into his eyes and then just starts to cry. And she said, we go inside and sit down and she holds his hand and she says, I want you to know, when you were a child, your parents called me and asked me to take care of you in this little house behind yours and I felt I was the luckiest girl in the whole world. She said, they had a crib for you you never slept in that crib. The whole time you were there, you slept in the bed with me. And I would sing songs to you and tell stories to you. Do you remember we played a game called rabbits? And we'd go out back and we'd pretend we were rabbits hopping around and you were my best friend and my treasure. And she goes, and I knew the whole time you were smart and awake and aware. And I remember when I figured out it was your hearing that was damaged. And when they sent you to that boarding school, I was so heartbroken. I thought about you and wondered about this boy who I loved so much. She told her life she had gotten married. She had never been able to have children herself. And so she had spent her life as a librarian wondering whatever happened to that little boy who she loved so much. And then one day in the nursing home, she saw a book with that name, looked it up and written him. And she said, I want to know your life. Tell me your life. And so for the next five days, he told her and they talked and they got to know each other and exchanged pictures. And then when the day came for Morton and Barbara to leave, they went to go. And just before they left, she was holding Morton's hand as they were walking out the door. And she began to sing a lullaby. The very same lullaby that had come to him at 23 years old, up on those mountains, and it stopped him from ending his life. A lullaby that told him he had worth and value. That's the ground truth. That's reality. That beneath all of the wounds and all of the suffering and all the times we feel hidden and alienated, there is a song. There is a song God is singing beneath all of it, waiting for us to tilt our ears and hear it.
waiting us for us to go down into the areas within us where the exiles live and hear that we are cherished and loved and known. And the invitation is, will you listen? Will you listen?